Welcome to the C++ Club. This is meeting number 151 that took place on the 14th of July 2022. The first images from James Webb Space Telescope have arrived and they're absolutely mind-blowing. That gravitational lensing is something else. I'm mentioning this because, not just because this is an amazing achievement and I like science, but also because JWST runs on C++. We've discussed this before, and there was a video interview with the team, and they confirmed that um, it runs on C++ indeed. I think the operating system is VxWorks, as is usual with these things. And the CPU is a hardened version of the PowerPC that was in uh, Nintendo GameCube. And in, in this thread, the first comment is struggling to see why that's special, so do millions of other things. <laughs> and I mean, technically, yes. But can you imagine being this person looking at the at JWST and going, meh, my microwave was also powered by C++. We have lost the sense of awe and wonder. <laughs> right, uh, everyone knows Godbolt, Compiler Explorer by now. Enter Dogbolt, the Decompiler Explorer. Awesome. Somebody sent me that this morning. I was actually having a little play with it because I, I normally use Gidra and I used to use uh, Hexray, so I'd pro and then I switched to Gidra and it's just awesome. But yeah, that is just brilliant. The fact I can run them <laughs> side by side. So uh, I've not got anything to reverse engineering yet, but next time I do, I'll certainly fire that up and see you know, what. How do they compare? Which ones are which ones are really getting it? So it's, yeah, that is that is just amazing. pretty amazing, and the naming is just perfect. Uh, Dogbolt uses several open source decompilers to try and produce C-like source code for a binary program uploaded by the user, which has to be under two megabytes in size. It's not a trivial task and the success readability rate of these tools varies wildly. But some results could actually be useful. The website offers a few example binaries as a showcase. Dogbolt is open source and is available on GitHub. I had a look at lots of Docker stuff and the main script, I think, is written in Python. Right. Um, we skipped two mailings of the committee, the May mailing and the June mailing. I collated uh, the interesting papers in one set. Uh, let's Look at some of them. So first of all, uh, the sort of procedure-oriented paper, 2022-11, Kona hybrid meeting information. The 2022 November meeting in Kona will be the first in-person committee meeting since the pandemic started. It will also be the first, uh, arguably, hybrid meeting with remote participation via Zoom, which is probably going to be challenging, according to some feedback I, I heard. Also, COVID is still here, and despite what uh, some authorities may say, and I hope that in-person participants will all be vaccinated and boosted. 
There will be good ventilation in the venue and face masks will be used sensibly so that the meeting doesn't turn into a super spreader event. Next paper is by Jens Mora and it's called Saturation Arithmetic. In order to implement some algorithms, the use of saturation arithmetic is necessary, where an operation yielding a result whose absolute value is too large instead, instead returns the smallest or largest representable number. For example, when determining the, co the color of a pixel, it would not make sense that brightening a white pixel suddenly turns into it black or dark gray. Instead, brightening a white pixel should simply yield a white pixel. The paper proposes to add simple free functions for basic saturating operations on all signed and unsigned integer types. Further, a saturate cast is provided that can convert from any of those types to any other, saturating the value as needed. Is it an interesting new way to make signed integer overflow a defined operation? The author mentioned uh, that a lot of CMD instruction sets already have special instructions for saturating arithmetics. The paper proposes that the new saturating functions have short names like addSat and subsat, as these are basic low-level operations. Wouldn't it be better to have a set of special operators instead? One can dream. It's probably not happening. So this is suggested as a feature, as a standard feature for which um, standard? That would be for 23 or for 26? Uh, the saturation arithmetic? Yeah. Uh, it's probably going to 26 at the earliest. Uh, by the way, there were several mails on the GitHub uh, issues regarding things that are not getting into 23 that were previously tagged to go there because of uh, committee's lack of time and one of those unfortunately is function ref it's not getting into 23 but it's definitely going to in 26 uh i think so it's it should be pretty much ready it's just that they didn't have time to review the wording or whatever um i guess you know it's not a major major loss you know it was no maybe. probably not it was something else that i forgot um but yeah i think there might be some other things that were destined for 23 that are not going to get into into 23 because uh, the backlog is huge uh this next paper is tuple protocol for c-style arrays by paolo di giglio uh, it will be digio g d digio thank you uh, this paper proposes to make c-style arrays of known size behave like tuples which should improve their usability in cases where c-style arrays can't be avoided like when using c-style interfaces uh, that would mean that you could split C-style arrays into tuple or 
use um, structured bindings, I suppose. Right, this next paper, specifying the interoperability of binary module interface files. Uh, this paper by Daniel Rosso uh, of Bloomberg specifies a mechanism to allow build systems to identify if a binary module interface shipped with a pre-built library can be used directly or if the build system needs to produce its own version of the binary module interface file. Binary modules need to have some sort of metadata included so that the build system can determine if the pre-built binary module interface files are compatible with the currently used toolchain. I can see how this could work in an enterprise setting like Bloomberg, where compilers are upgraded across the board, but the upgrade uh, doesn't happen very often. And so projects that depend on other libraries could often reuse pre-built module information files shipped with their internal dependencies. Okay, next one is a paper called Static Operator uh, Subscript. This paper proposes to enable operator subscript to be static in line with an existing proposal that enables static operator function call. Next one is explicit lifetime management. This paper by Timo Dumler and Richard Smith is about uh, starting a lifetime of objects manually. Since C20, you can use certain blessed standard library functions like malloc, bitcast, and memcpy, memcopy, to start object lifetime. And the example code is you allocate memory on the heap of size of a struct and then because that starts the lifetime of that object you can immediately access its members and treat it like a normal structure so this was uh you mentioned to replace uh, the idea of standard bless no not really they just use the the term sort of blessed functions that, that are special in some, some way. It's not the stood bless. It's a bit confusing. So to bless was it to, to basically allow for avoiding the undefined behavior that you would get with just reinterpreting casting uh, what would come um, was that, out of a socket. Was that stud launder? I think there was an overlap, but I don't remember to be honest, mm. but they, I know that standard bless was then renamed to something else, which may have been start lifetime as. That yes. sounds like more or less the same thing. Yeah. So for memory allocated using any other function, including user defined allocator, for example, a memory pool, the above code snippet is undefined behavior. So this paper proposes a set of library functions that would start object lifetime given arbitrary memory block. That, that was it, yeah. I think it was because it was undefined behavior because you never called the constructor of the object. Yeah. And therefore, you know, technically that object never existed. So calling bless or now, I guess, start lifetime as, you'd allow it to be used without undefined behavior in a way 
this star lifetime as would kind of call the constructor. I don't know what would do actually under the hood, but I think that was the idea. Yeah. This is only being proposed for implicit lifetime types like aggregates, as no constructor is actually being called. Interesting. Yeah. The proposed functions are, like you said, start lifetime as and start lifetime as array. Although, in my humble opinion, they could have been called something like stat create or indeed stat bless. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or, uh, or maybe even stood evolve from a lowly flat memory buffer into a real actual object. That would have been less controversial, I guess. Yeah. On the other hand, I guess being explicit about your intent is probably better. Also, naming is hard. I do wonder how many people are going to actually start using this because the practice nowadays is just you get a piece of memory that is supposed to be some sort of aggregate and you just do reinterpret cast especially when you need to do it fast and you have something that comes out of a socket or something. Yeah, well, this is the approved way of doing that. Mm -hmm. No random reinterpret casts. Studhive paper got updated again. It's now at the revision 20. It addresses quite a few issues raised by the reviewers, including improvements to the technical specification, addition of C++ 20 ranges of loads and API extensions and clarifications. We are bound to get it at some point. <laughs> I guess the order is insisting. So eventually, eventually it will work. Yeah, eventually the committee will run out of uh, issues to report to the author and we'll have to accept it. That's a marketing issue at this point. <laughs> I don't even know. It's not a priority, I guess. Uh, some people are not convinced that it should be in the standard even. And I understand, you know, we, we still don't have important things like reflections, you know, so I know that there's different groups that should talk about this, but uh, if we cannot get those things in. Uh, from what I heard, reflection is beyond, oh, actually that was pattern matching. Uh, someone's working on it, financed by uh, the committee, I think would probably be Michael Park, the original author, I guess. But I haven't heard much about reflection. Yeah, right. So this paper by Jeff Garland proposes to add monadic functions available for std optional to std expected. The proposed functions are and then, which composes a chain of functions returning std expected, or else which returns if std expected has value or calls a function with the error and transform, which applies a function to change value or type. In normal languages, this, this would be called map, but C++, so transform it is. Additional functions have been proposed. Transform error, which applies a function to change value or type, or if there's an error, it calls a function with the error type and error or which returns a value when there is no error. Uh, there are several snippets 
before and after. So this before snippet calls hypothetical function from string that passes a string and returns an expected of time or a string containing the error message. And in the before code, you would check uh, that the expected value is true, which means it has a value, and then act accordingly. And after this proposal with the monadic interface available, you would chain those functions from string dot or else print error and dot transform for example do something with the date don't dislike it but i think it's going to take some getting used to i think this is what is getting into 23 for the uh, std optional monadic interface already interesting so probably if when we get standard expect we also get this automatically just for parity with the optional i'm not sure if expected is getting into 23 i i don't Maybe remember 26. but if 26 it's one of those things that they're still figuring out hmm. so yeah we should get uh, it with this monadic interface in 23 Probably lots of this is also, I don't know if Boost Outcome has this kind of interface as well uh, these days. And it's yeah. kind of a similar object. Boost Outcome is vastly more capable and supports all kinds of special error codes. And yeah, I think it also has monadic interface. Uh, this next paper allow multiple init statements. This is just revision zero, so no idea how it'll fare. Justin Cook proposes to allow multiple init statements wherever an init statement is currently allowed, specifically in for, if, and switch statements. Currently, you can only def declare more than one variable there if all declared variables are of the same type. So as you can see this uh, example of use, the first line uh, declares two variables of type int, one after another separated by a comma, and this is legal in C20. Uh, the proposal is to make declaring like int k equals zero, semicolon, double s equals zero, semicolon, and then the condition clause, and then uh, the uh, increment of the index. Many Redditors have a problem with this. They say that it makes the statement change its meaning depending on the number of semicolons in it. And I kind of agree. This is like pushing it too far, maybe. Making it less... Uh, readable than with just the init block. You can always create a scope outside the loop if you need to declare lots of stuff. But, yeah, definitely uh, it's a little bit strange for the trained eye to parse it uh, now because you have an extra bit. Frankly, also, don't think I would use it very much. I think, you know, this is one of those that people think, oh, there is a missing corner that it may be added because we have this here. We may have this there as well. 
Yeah. Maybe it's not that. I'm not convinced. By the way, tools like Sea Lion have already uh, fixed it for the normal init statement. Uh, like if you have a variable declared just outside the, the loop or an if, they suggest that uh, it should be moved to the inner scope. Nice. Right. The next one is a format for describing dependencies of source files. This is also related to modules. It describes a format for discovery of source file and module dependencies to be generated or consumed by build systems. The proposed format is JSON, and I just can't. I wish developers would stop being so obsessed with JSON and trying to use it for anything remotely related to structured text or configuration information. I'm so old, I remember when the same thing was happening to XML. It was being used everywhere. I guess it's okay. I mean, JSON as an intermediate data exchange format. It's better than XML for sure, but... Uh, yes. Uh, it's not very human readable. It's not very human readable, and it doesn't even support things like dates. They say uh, just use a string in a so format, or comments indeed. It's like, I would uh, honestly prefer Toml over JSON, but not YAML. I had my share of working with YAML. Didn't like it one bit. I second that. Significant white space. <laughs> right, that's it for the papers. And now uh, there was a C++ annual developer survey, which closed on the 7th of June. And uh, the results are now available. And I wanted to say that it's probably the first time in several years when I didn't finish filling a developer survey. Uh, not only the questions were subjective and seemed to seemed biased towards a particular understanding of the development world by the survey authors. As an example, <clears throat> when asking about IDEs and compilers, the only choice for the usage were primary, secondary, and occasional. I often use more than three IDEs and they take different priority on different platforms. Another problem was the multiple checkbox questions at the beginning asking where I use C++ with the following choices at work, at school, and in personal time. It should be clear that these settings may be significantly different to the point that the subsequent questions should be separate for each of the, tick of the ticked settings. But instead, the authors just joined everything together. It appeared to me useful. at the time uh, that extracting any meaningful results from such a survey would be impossible. And I think I was right <laughs> looking at these results. The corresponding thread on Reddit started with this. I think an important missing question is, how much do you care about ABI stability of C++? The answer of that should guide many decisions of the standard committee." End quote. Yes, let's use surveys to guide the committee, because as we all know, especially my UK colleagues, referendums work really well for making important decisions. 
imagine if they wanted to turn uh, the committee process into some sort of a democracy where the person that screams the loudest wins as he usually is in this kind of stuff yeah we would have a dictatorship of the minority in one minute <laughs> lots of papers approved or not approved and it's now that the result everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and now the results are in and they confirm my fears the results themselves are in PDF format and, oh my word, clipped text. Like uh, if you if you look at more complex charts, like <laughs> you would think that the choices would be like visible because there's plenty of space, but they decided to limit them to two lines and then just cut them off. Uh, and that mysterious 100% scale, X uh, scale for all the questions, all the charts, just makes them useless. And the data also wasn't sanitized. What organizations come to your mind the most when you think about C++ and why? And they decided to do a word cloud without sanitizing it. So you get things like, seam main etc mostly <laughs> since given the question microsoft google and google microsoft i mean given the questions i had low expectations but damn right uh next one is how to handle errors this old chestnut again uh, Redditor wants to get an idea what people use for error handling in C++ these days. One of the responses say, uh, says, quote, for me, it's exceptions alone until I can see through the measurement and with a profiler that they are too costly. Then it's still exceptions alone, except for the parts that show hot in the measurement. I understand that some domains cannot use exceptions, but I rather think they are a few in between. Too many people think they are special when they are not. High-frequency trading people working with exceptions tell me I have some leeway. The response to the statement, exceptions break control flow, was, quote, early return also breaks control flow and is considered a correct way to do it. So, hmm. uh, someone said, my problem with exceptions is less about performance and more about being very anxious of a random exception from a random function that I didn't think can throw exceptions. And to that, the same Redditor replied, oh, I absolutely don't worry about that. What you say is quite common. And in my not so humble opinion, just needs a small bit of understanding. Code must be designed with exception safety guarantees in mind. Note that early return and go to are similar to exceptions. Point being, this kind of thinking is far from specific to exceptions. And the no throw guarantees exist for an exceedingly small number of functions and other code artifacts, notably extern C calls, non throwing swap, plain old data type assignment, things like that. They are easily visible. And another reply to the same post goes, quote, 
That's the wrong mindset with exceptions. You should assume every line can throw and write your code so that the cleanup is done automatically by default. So you have the basic, basic exception guarantee always. And only when it matters for you to have stronger guarantees, you use constructs that you know can't throw in order to build the guarantees you need at that point. It should never be a matter of being worried that a random function may throw. You either know for sure or don't care." End quote. The general vibe of the thread seems to be just use exceptions and not worry too much about their cost, which is perhaps a bit surprising given the number of new error handling mechanisms proposed recently and widely published perceived problems with exceptions. Some posters in the thread state quite correctly that there is no universal error handling solution that is going to suit every need and use case. And in some cases, you may want to use std-expected or similar class as a function result. However, the problem with this is that you'll have to either handle the errors locally or propagate them manually, which, which exceptions give you automatically. While waiting for C++23, you can use Cybrand's TL expected, which is std expected with functional extensions, extensions. It's available on GitHub, where the author put it in public domain. It also it's also available via Conan or VC Package Manager. It has nice documentation. It works with C++11, 14, and 17 and compiles with GCC, Clang, and MSVC. There was another implementation of std-expected just announced on Reddit. This one also supports monadic extensions, and this one requires C++20. It's under MIT license, and yeah, use it. So yeah, that's settled then. Error handling is solved, right? Actually, there was another library proposed, and I think that's what's going to settle error handling once and for all. So a Redditor created a library called inline try. Quote, I decided to go to do a thing and solve this issue once and for all. With inline try, you can turn any exception-based function into an expected-based function." End quote. The library wraps function calls in try-catch block and returns to the expected, thus reducing exceptions down to mere return codes that you check after each function call. And the funniest thing about it is that the author cle clearly meant this as a joke. <laughs> but the Redditors, uh, the Redditors in the thread seem to have completely missed it. As expected, See what I did there? The commenters descended into the usual discussions of exceptions versus no exceptions, herbceptions, how this is similar to boost leaf and efficiency of the proposed code. So I guess stay tuned for more error handling discussions. And by the way, the library is under GPL, so now you can't wrap exceptions and return expected without open sourcing your entire program. Next one is a link to an old C++11 2016, but still useful 10 lecture course by Stefan T. Lauerweid on YouTube. 
it's called Core C++, and uh, it's a lots of whiteboarding, which is interesting given that uh, Stefan Tilaway does it. And it's good. Yeah, there's 10 episodes, mm, around one hour each. Uh, if you have someone learning C++, this is a good resource. So this is a weird one. Tom Honeman is uh, the chair of SG16 Unicode and Text Processing Study Group. And he posted a quiz on Twitter. Uh, there is a, a function that takes two parameters of type int. The first one is x, and the second one is this weird uh, symbol. So the function uh, has this body return x minus 321 with each digit in that number separated by apostrophe and minus that weird symbol. That's the other parameter. And this function is called in main with the parameters 321 and 1 to 3, and the result is printed. And the question is, without checking, what output is produced? Uh, the majority of people, including myself, I would have uh, said the same. Said a minus 123. And that was wrong. But why? <laughs> See that weird character? It's a Hebrew character used for parameter name. And it's called Tav. It's pronounced as voiceless T. But more importantly, its Unicode bidirectional class is right to left. And its mere presence causes nearby characters to be interpreted in the right to left order. So the expression x minus 3 to 1 minus Tav is seen by the compiler as x minus one two three minus <laughs> and so the current correct answer to the quiz is 75. some text editors like vs code try to mitigate this by inserting a special unicode character called left to right mark after each token by the way trying to paste this code snippet and then editing it in vs code for uh, the meeting notes was an exercise in frustration as the cursor was moving all over the place on the line containing this character. Tom writes, SG16 plans to propose allowances for implicit directional marks to appear in conjunction with other white space characters in a future C++ standard. Probably to mitigate this uh, situation that's not ideal. In the meantime, if you value your sanity, try to not use non-left-to-right characters in your source code. And don't use that as an interview question. Uh, Nikolai Yosutis is writing a book on C++20. It's 95% complete, or maybe now it's already fully complete. You can buy it on LeanPub for a suggested price of $44.90. Minimum price $22.90 plus VAT. Uh, updates are free so that you'll be able to download new versions of the book as it's being completed. Uh, the table of contents suggests that the book is very detailed and thorough. Uh, I'm currently finishing up uh, Nikolai's uh, book on C17. It's, 
it's really very good uh he tends to go into minuscule details and explain things very thoroughly next one is an article about uh, the mold linker martin riktarski a developer from germany wrote a blog post on his productive c++ blog called using the mold linker for fun and three to eight times link time speedups it's a very interesting article it's quite uh, long quite thorough it starts with a quick and very high level introduction to the c++ build process quote best practices for writing c++ code and a distributed build system can go a long way in reducing compile times but in this post we want to focus on speeding up the linking step which comes after building the object files of a library or executable end quote one tip i intend to try right away was a linker switch i didn't know about and that was displit dwarf i think it's mentioned somewhere towards the end the author says this outsources the debug info from the object file into an adjacent file and therefore reduces the work the linker has to perform yeah it make, yeah that makes a small yeah it makes a bit of a difference overall but when you've got decent machines with decent amount of memory it's not that much of a difference these days the, the main thing that that makes the, the biggest difference is simply um putting attributes to reduce the actual number of symbols and explicitly was obviously the standard practice is everybody just exports everything and yeah and the, the most efficient and most effective way of speeding up link times is clearly defining your apis and reducing your symbols but clearly that is a lot of work yeah uh, what's most interesting, though, is the author's real-world experience using mold, which is going to be very useful uh, real soon, I hope. There is even a solution for using mold with ICC-compiled objects. The provided benchmarks show marked improvement in link times when using mold. There was an interesting related tweet by Rui Uyama, the creator of mold. Uh, quote, Leaving Google and starting working on mold was a bet and it's going well so far the idea is uh, to try to replicate the success of mold in c++ is growing on me it feels like we might be able to write a 10 times faster c++ compiler if you really focus on speed just thinking and now some amusing tweets jonah miller writes why would i want a programming crash course I can make my programs crash without help, thanks. A quote by Kevin Fazad. Sure, I made mistakes when I was younger. But now that I'm older, I've learned how to make different, often far more serious mistakes. And finally, this is from Reddit. This person wins Reddit for this answer on how to mock databases. I usually start by saying, oh, look at me, I'm a database. I could be replaced with a text file, but I'm oh so important in a really sarcastic way. Right, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. Until next time. Thank you. Bye.